0: I trust that you have opened your Bible to the book of Psalms and that you work your way towards Psalm 119. And we, we, we will cover some of Psalm 119 tonight, but what's the point of spending three years of it if we're going to cover all of it tonight, right? So what we're going to do this evening is we're going to speak much more about how to read, how to engage the Psalm 119 specifically and the Psalms or biblical Hebrew poetry uh, more broadly, I just finished the book called Engaging the Old Testament. As you can see, I have a cover reveal right now. You're the first person to see it publicly. Congratulations. Now, in this book, one of the main reasons why I wrote this book is because I just, as, a, as part of my vocation, want to help people to engage with the Old Testament well, particularly those difficult sections like biblical Hebrew poetry. That's part of my mission. That's part of what I want to do. If you If you look at what I wrote here on the screen, you'll see that one of the the main things that I've encountered as an educator over the past seven years since I've been teaching at the university level. Readers who love the Bible, that's us. You wouldn't be here ready to engage in a three-year study on Psalm 119 unless you love the Bible, amen? So readers that love the Bible sometimes sacrifice reading the text well. So that's us. What I've noticed is that people like us, Sometimes sacrifice reading the text well, right? That is to say engaging with the beauty of its aesthetic devices for the sake of taking it as God's word. What do you mean, Dominic? Here's what I mean. Sometimes people who love the Bible don't engage with it well because they think that the Bible can't be really good literature, so we, we take it as God's word, but we don't study it as if it's really good literature. And, and I really want to say the first thing to study studying any of the Psalms is to recognize that that is fake news. You see that? That's fake news. And the reason why it's fake news is because the Bible is at least awesome literature. At least. Bare, at bare minimum, it's really good literature. But we believe it to be much more than that, Right? The Bible is at least really good literature, but we believe it to be much more than that. One of my favorite writers by the name of Meyer Sternberg in this book that you see up here says, except for a veto on graven images, God does not appear a critic of art. There's a little bit of sarcasm in this in this quotation. Basically, what Meyer Sternberg is saying is, except for the fact that God says don't worship idols, he doesn't say anything bad about art ever. Basically, the writers of the Bible, especially the psalmists, were artists. They were poets. And in order to engage well with what they're saying, we have to study them as such. We have to engage with their literature as really good poetry. So, readers who love the Bible, that's us. We are compelled to engage with the Bible. We are compelled to engage with the beauty of its aesthetic devices because we believe it to be God's word. Right? We don't do away with the Bible as, as, as artwork, as beautiful literature because it's God's Word. We actually embrace the fact that it's beautiful literature because it's God word, God's Word. And God shows us through this beautiful literature that God is a really creative God that, is in, that inspired poets, and people that could write narrative well, and people that could write the Gospels, and people that could write letters and all different types of people to communicate with humankind exactly what he wanted to communicate. All right, so as we jump into the Psalms, we have to ask, what are the Psalms? What is the Psalms? You know, uh, saying the word Psalm in the Bible is sort of like saying salsa music for those of you that like to dance salsa music. I love dancing salsa music with my wife. But if you say to a salsa aficionado or even a jazz aficionado or any other particular sort of broad type of music, you know, I love to dance salsa, salsa aficionados would say, "Well, there kind of isn't really one type of music called salsa. There's booganco, there's guaracha, there are all of these different types of music that are sort of lumped together and called salsa music, okay?" It's the same thing with the book of Psalms. There's all different types of compositions that are lumped together and called Psalms. So if you don't believe me, let's just look at the Bible, okay? In the book of Psalms, you're going to see all of these titles, right? At the beginning, at the, at the headings of many of the Psalms, you'll see like Shir. It'll be transliterated in your Bible. Shir. or Sometimes there's Shir hama'alot. These are Hebrew words that we don't really know exactly what they all mean, but they're different types of compositions. Shir, fila, mizmor, shemenit, shigayon, gitit, miktam, maskil. These are all, yes, psalms. So they're all different types of poetry, just like we could say, wawanko and Guaracha are different types of salsa. All, different, all of these names are different types of psalms. And in these types of psalms, we see aesthetic devices, devices that are used to make this literature beautiful come out. There are three specific aesthetic devices that are used in Psalm 119, but two that are used in all biblical Hebrew poetry that we'll talk about this evening. Okay? The three aesthetic devices that are used in Psalm 119 specifically is the aesthetic device of an acrostic. The sec- this is specific to Psalm 119. Now, it shows up in other areas of the Bible as well. It's not just in Psalm 119. For example, in Nahum 1, there's an acrostic. It's not just... A- and in several other Psalms, there are acrostics. We'll talk about what an acrostic is in just a second. So it's not, it's, not, it's, it's not universal. We don't see acrostics in all biblical Hebrew poetry. But the other two things, parallelism and metaphor, we see in all biblical Hebrew poetry. They function ...as the heart of biblical Hebrew poetry. In fact, that's how we're able to identify biblical Hebrew poetry... ...by way of recognizing parallelism and metaphor. We're going to talk about all of these right now. An acrostic. All right. An acrostic. Now, for those of you that know your ABCs... ...you've seen that I wrote half of the ABCs on the left-hand side of, of the screen, Right? The reason why I did that is because it's very easy for us to recognize an acrostic if it's written in, in English, if you're, if you're a native English speaker or whatever your, your native language is. If the alphabet is listed and then you have uh, words in, filled in for each one of those letters, you look at this. And you naturally recognize, oh, someone is being creative here, right? We sort of intuitively understand it. We look at it, we go, oh, A B C D E F G. I get it. Someone's being creative here. Well, an acrostic is a composition in which the first letters in each line form a word or make up the alphabet. In this case, in the Psalm, in in the case of Psalm 119, as Miss Kathy was saying, we have the entire Psalm is an acrostic. It, It starts off with the Hebrew letter. Aleph. Say Aleph. Okay, half of you are paying attention. Say aleph. aleph. Okay, Aleph. So what you're going to see in your Bibles, if you have your Bibles in, open to Psalm 119, you're going to see the, at the, prior to the first verse, transliterated, probably in capitals or italicized, depending on, upon how the copy editor of your, of your Bible you know, decided to do this, you're going to see Aleph. All right? Now jump down eight verses, and you're going to see Bet. Some people would say beth. It's actually bet. You can say bet. Okay, bet. The H is sort of silent there. And then you jump down eight verses. You see gimel, and then dalit, and then hey, and then vav, and then zain, and it continues for 22 consonants, the 22 consonants of the Hebrew alphabet. All of those verses in those particular sections start off with the same consonant. Isn't that awesome? All right, this is, what, this is why it's important for us to recognize that we as, as believers of the Bible as God's word can't do away with the wonderful, the beautiful, the awesome aesthetic devices. We can't just say, oh, oh that's for token. No, the Bible's at least as good as Tolkien, right? I got one amen. No, the Bible's at least as good as Tolkien. All right, so let me, uh, let me sh- so there's a couple of really famous acrostics that you're already familiar with. The first one, uh, you know, that you're probably most familiar with, I got tattooed on my right arm when I was 19, the things that we do when we're children, right? Uh, is this, is the one that you see in in, uh, in in yellow on the screen, almost forgot my colors here. And that's, if you look just at the red, that's the Greek word ictus, which means fish. So this is the word for the Jesus fish. Yes, I have a Jesus fish tattooed on my right arm. And and so you'll see this ichthus, you'll see it on cars, or you maybe you have it on your car or a sticker. It was really a big deal about 20 years ago. And as you can see, if you go down in the red letters, there are letters written in is that blue-green to the right of the red letters. Do you see that? And, that's, and those words that are written are Jesus, Christos, Teo, Huios Soter. So Jesus, Christ, God, Son, Savior. That's a well-known acrostic. All right. So, But also, there's one more very well-known acrostic that you might be familiar with, and it's Proverbs 31. So Proverbs 31 is probably, you know, one of the most well-known acrostics that you're familiar with. Proverbs 31 is a poem. Proverbs 31 is not a a list or a a checklist for a future wife or a checklist for a wife. It's actually intended to be beautiful poetry. I think it's the ultimate manifestation of what wisdom looks like. And we see that it is intended to be viewed as beautiful poetry. Why? Because it's an acrostic. So it starts off with Aleph. You can see I've put the Hebrew there. I've highlighted the Aleph, the Bet, the Gimel, the Dalit, and the Hey. And it continues all the way to the final letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is Tav. So why is this important? Why is it important for us to recognize that, or not just recognize, but, but appreciate the fact that, the, that this particular psalm is written in an acrostic style. Well, what it does is, is, it, is it, by appreciating the acrostic, by appreciating this particular aesthetic device, we are able to see the genius of the writers of Scripture. See, the Lord didn't just, you know, the Lord, doesn't, the Lord didn't set across God's, His Word by setting, setting forth just a bunch of straightforward platitudes. That's not what God did, and we have evidence of that in the Scripture. The the God God of the scriptures wants to appeal to the whole human being, not just cognition, not just by saying stuff or getting you to memorize stuff. That's not it, but also to appeal to the affect or even maybe to the psychomotor domain by getting us to, to to move us to action, right? God is not just about telling people what to do, but also influencing people by getting at their heart. And aesthetic devices like this really push at The heart they push at what people they put when someone writes you a poem, they're doing something else for you. That's a bit different than when they write a story for you. Right. And this is what we see in the scriptures. It, also, uh, we see that, that God, well, the third point is really that God desires to influence the whole person. So we're not just human beings that engage the scriptures because we want to know facts. Yes, the facts are awesome, but also God wants to do something to us through the scriptures and God options to do that in, uh, in beautiful ways throughout the poetry of scripture. If you have any questions about an acrostic, write them down because we're about to move on to biblical parallelism. I give you five seconds. That was long enough to make you all feel awkward, but please write them down if you have questions. All right, so the second major aesthetic device is parallelism, parallelism. So you can see I've written these two parallel lines. If there's any math teachers in the room, you are so happy that I've written these two parallel, given a, you know, a, a visual of two parallel lines. But this actually is precisely what we see in parallelism to a certain extent. It's a, it's a, it's a picture of how Biblical poet or biblical poets wrote the scriptures. Parallelism, as you can see up on the screen, relates this idea of concise statements that ultimately make up a unified final product. And they're generally organized in adjacent lines. Okay, here's what this means. By putting words next to each, or by putting two lines next to each other, juxtaposing two lines, one line of biblical Hebrew poetry and another line of biblical Hebrew poetry, the sum of that has a greater meaning than the component parts. That's what parallelism does. okay? and this is a a big sort of indicator that we are dealing that we are working in biblical Hebrew poetry because we see these short, concise statements, one right after the other, right after the other, right after the other. And somehow, some way they're related. Now, I've I've written, as you can see up on the screen, at least four ways in which the biblical Hebrew parallelism indicates some sort of relationship between adjacent lines. Semantics relates to meanings, and that's mostly what we're going to talk about this evening. It's also mostly what you can get from the Bible as you read a translation. Now, by the way, that isn't intended to be presumptuous. or I'm sorry, not presumptuous. It's not intended to be sort of, um, you know... uh, Elitist, you know, only people that can read the languages get, um, you know, all of the different types of parallelism. It's not intended to be that. It's just intended to relate the fact that we are, we are distant to a certain extent from the original Hebrew uh, of, of, of biblical Hebrew poetry. And sometimes certain aesthetic devices are lost in translation. For example, like phonology. So if we're reading a translation, we can't, we can't hear how the biblical Hebrew poet might have been playing on words, right? Or like shared conjugations, which is called morphology. We can't, we can't hear, we can't see how the biblical Hebrew poet might have just been messing around with different conjugations. Like we do in English when we write poetry. Or for those of you that are rappers, how we rhyme at the end of lines and things like that. We lose that when we translate it into another language. And the same thing with syntax, when you translate biblical Hebrew into English or the other target language, Spanish or whatever your language might be, you lose a little bit of what, at least a little bit of what the syntax would have been in the original language because every language has its unique syntax. But what does transfer over for the most part in most translations is this parallelism in meaning, which means you can normally see... That two adjacent lines in biblical Hebrew poetry, and we see this tons in Psalm 119. That's why I continue to talk about it. Two adjacent lines are related to each other somehow, some way. There's a couple of ways in which they're related to each other, all right? Sometimes we have this correspondence in meaning. And it's just that adjacent lines are similar in meaning, right? So you're, anybody that's studied the first chapter of the book of Psalms, the first verse knows this verse right blessed is the man who walks not in the in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers okay psalm chapter one verse one we're generally familiar with this i chose this because we're generally familiar with this so the first line is blessed is the man who walks and not in the counsel of the wicked we pause there now notice i've i've set nor stands in the way of sinners off to the side a little bit why because the, the subject of that sentence is gapped, which means it's not explicitly repeated in the second line, but we're still understanding the subject to be the man, right? So the man doesn't stand in the way of sinners, and the man doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. you see that? All three of those lines have very similar meanings. That's semantic parallelism. They're short, concise lines. They're right next to each other, and they have similar meanings. And then, as we continue to read in the very next verse we see the same thing, but the opposite, the adverse. Instead of this man, as you can see here, standing, or, or standing, sitting, walking, we see the, the person that does the opposite delights in the law of the Lord and on his law meditates day and night. So the first line of this verse represents the person who delights in the law of the Lord. And the second line explains what that person does. They're related lines. They're two concise related lines. But the delight is in the law of the Lord. Oh, and how does he demonstrate that? He meditates on it day and night. Now, this is similar meaning. These two lines have similar meaning. They're just the opposite of what was just said in the first portion of the verse. Now, sometimes correspondence and meanings basically means the opposite or basically two lines will say the opposite things Two adjacent lines will say the opposite things like we see frequently in the Proverbs. So here we have the words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright delivers them. You see, one line says the words of the wicked do this, but the mouth of the upright does this. We have two adjacent lines right next to each other. One says one thing. The other one says the exact opposite, essentially the exact opposite. Sometimes in with parallelism, we have um, a resultant clause. So many of us are familiar with Psalm chapter 23, which is also another beautiful poem. Starts off by saying, The Lord is my shepherd. And then we have a resultant clause. So the Lord is my shepherd. So, like, so what? What does that have to do with anything, right? Very concise statement, The Lord is my shepherd. The next line, I shall not want. They're related because the second one is the result of the first. And frequently in the Psalms, we also have. Questions that are then subsequently answered. So we'll have one line that poses a question. The next line answers the question immediately. That's also another form of parallelism. Who can discern his own errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. So here we have several different types of semantic correspondence. Throughout Psalm 119, we'll discuss this in just a bit. I'll give you some examples after we talk about metaphor. But throughout Psalm 19, we have repeated semantic correspondence. One line will say something. The next line will say something very similar. One line will say something. The next line will say something that's the opposite. Or generally the opposite. One line, will, one line will say something, the next line will finish the thought. This is key to reading biblical Hebrew poetry. Now, just, just, just to give you a couple of examples of how there are some, there are some uh, aesthetic devices that are lost in translation. Uh, I wanted to just show you this one right here from Psalm chapter 103 verse 10. So here we have parallelism, exactly what we just talked about, but that doesn't exactly sort of translate into English. So in English, we have this this verse says, not according to our sins does he deal with us and not according to our iniquities does he repay us. So we get the semantic uh, parallelism. We're like, oh, those lines are saying pretty much the same thing, right? They're saying something very close. But look at what the transliterated Hebrew says underneath. You see, it's that there's I've highlighted are bolded lo and lo, that doesn't phonetic. They're the same thing, but it doesn't translate into English. And then you have ka and ka in both of those lines. That doesn't translate into English, right? And then you have anu anu and lanu alenu. Those that's that's phonetic correspondence that doesn't translate into English. So just to let you know, the writers of biblical Hebrew poetry were really smart. And they were really creative, and we thank God for revealing his word to us in this way in order to affect our entire being, not just to give us, like I said, simple platitudes, but also to move us to action. Now, if you have a question about parallelism, I'll give you about five seconds to write it down now, because we're going to move on to metaphor, and then we'll talk a little bit about some of the—we'll give a couple of examples from Psalm 119. All right, now this gets progressively uh, more complex. And this is awesome because as we continue to think through the complexities of biblical Hebrew poetry, we too become amazed like the psalmist at how awesome God's communication is to humankind, right? And the more we study it, the more we realize that this is really creative and really impactful as we engage with it more. One of the major ways to grasping how beautiful, how thoughtful biblical Hebrew poetry is, is by way of studying the metaphors that we see show up in biblical Hebrew poetry. What is a metaphor? Well, we studied this in the 6th or 7th or 8th grade. No, let's, let's actually study this again, okay? Here, I've... I've, 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 I've uh, written a definition of what a metaphor is, a highly stylized figurative or metaphor is highly stylized figurative language that portrays one object in place of another. so you might be thinking okay that 's simple, that might not be how I define it. Just bear with me for a second here, because parallelism and metaphor are literally at the heart, as I was saying, you like that metaphor, at the heart of biblical Hebrew poetry. all right. At the heart of it, but really biblical Hebrew poetry doesn't go unless you study the parallelism and the parallelism and the metaphor. It, it really doesn't go. You, you, you don't get it, right? It's not narrative. It's not, a, it's not straightforward. Like we might think it, this it's really the heart. It really pumps out meaning. Once you start to study parallelism and metaphor, you see it is vital to getting what's going on in biblical Hebrew and biblical Hebrew poetry. All right. Parallelism, as you can see on the slide, provides the sort of the pulsations. It's steady, right? And this is what invigorates the compositions. Now, metaphors are the life source. So metaphors sort of run through biblical Hebrew poetry. And it's really important to grasp the metaphors because they give liveliness to the composition. And in order for us to draw near, to study the heart of biblical Hebrew poetry, we have to work at understanding these ancient figures of speech, all right? For those of you that are turning away, you can turn back now. I've pulled the heart off. (laughs) So how does metaphor work? Well, here's how metaphor works, okay? With metaphor, there is a target domain and a source domain. This is important stuff for the study of the Bible. Target domain and a source domain. The the less structured concept is the target domain. So let's say you're trying to understand one concept in light of another. The less structured concept, the less delineated one is called the target domain. That's the one that you want to understand, okay? And the more structured concept is called the source domain. That's the one you understand more. The target domain is understood in light of the source domain by way of what's called mapping in your brain. Don't worry, I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to give you one that you can relate to, and I'm going to to hopefully demonstrate why this is so important to the study of biblical Hebrew poetry and Psalm 119 more specifically, okay? So, think about an argument. Maybe the last argument that you had today with someone that you love. Think Think about how you would define what an argument is. Just think about that for a second the chances are that you would define an argument in light of the more delineated concept war so it's difficult to explain what an argument is without making reference to war right now argument isn't necessarily a war it's not literally a war there's actually a such thing as a literal war but think about this when you talk about an argument or you relate or you're arguing with someone you generally approach this in terms of war right your claims are indefensible. By the way, you can see where I got this on the bottom right-hand uh, corner of the screen. Very, very good book met- metaphors we live by. Your, your claims are indefensible. That's war terminology, right? He attacked every weak point. That's war terminology. His criticisms were right on target, like shooting at something, right on target. Again, war terminology. He shot down all of my arguments. Again, war terminology. So what we do is we understand this vague idea of an argument, because we could... Def- it, but it's much easier to view that concept in light of a war, right? I'm going to shoot down all of your arguments. That argument is absolutely indefensible. My argument's right on target. Yours, your, your arguments are weak or whatever. Uh, my arguments are impregnable or whatever else it is that you might want, want to use to, to talk about you know, argumentation. Generally speaking, it's much easier to understand it in light of war. So this is how metaphors are also used in the Bible. I'm going to give you a practical example of why it's important to track these metaphors more specifically from the Psalms. And then we'll talk about some of the specific metaphors from Psalm 119. All right. Psalm 91. There's three lines in this Psalm. The first two lines say the following. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. Now, in the context of this Psalm, we are talking about God. Or the psalmist is talking about God. We understand this. So God will cover you with his pinions. Immediately we're like, wait a second. We should be. Thinking, wait a second. Does God have pinions? So either, if if we we have a very sort of, if we don't understand that there are beautiful aesthetic devices that are being utilized by the psalmist, we will be forced to think that God assumes a body like this. Which we don't believe. God's not a bird. But the metaphor, God is a bird, is what the psalmist is utilizing in order to help the readers understand that just like a bird covers something with its pinions, so God covers us with his pinions, right? That's what the psalmist is getting at here. And under his wings, you will find refuge. So just like uh, there's a bird that provides refuge under its wings, so the, the readers of the psalm can also find refuge under God's wings, metaphorical wings, So we read this God is a bird metaphor here in Psalm 91. Now, this God is a bird metaphor shows up repeatedly throughout the Psalms. Look at this. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your... God doesn't have wings. No, no, really, right? God doesn't have wings. This is a metaphor. Psalms. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your... In the shadow of your... I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Wait, wait, wait. We're not finished yet. Psalm 60, uh, 63, 7. For you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings, you see. In the shelter of your wings, we see in Psalm 61, 4. And this metaphor actually transcends biblical Hebrew poetry and is used in Ruth chapter 2, as you can see in this verse. So this was a very prevalent metaphor. It was a very prevalent way of understanding the protection of, God of, of the God of Israel. And it's important for us to understand this and track this because it's by way of tracking the metaphors, the imagery, how the biblical poets wrote that we're able to even pick up on concepts, biblical theological concepts that transcend even specific psalms or specific books. So what am I talking about? Check this out. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus says the following statement, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. You should be familiar with this part, right? Now check out how he continues. How often would I have gathered your children together as as a hen gathers her brood, under her wings and you were not willing. Hold on a second. What is Jesus doing now? Jesus is changing out the target domain for himself. So whereas in the Psalms, the target domain was God, Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I'm the one that has wings now. So now Jesus is the bird. So he is making an implicit claim to his own divinity. He's identifying as the God of Israel there, saying, Jerusalem, I would have been the one that would have gathered you under my wings. But you wouldn't do it. And he was talking to people that would have understood. You see how many times the God is a bird metaphor is used in the Old Testament? How frequently it's used. He's talking to people that would have, that would have understood that. So when Jesus says, oh, I would have gathered you under my wings. He's, making, he's identifying literarily with the God of Israel. Okay, so what's all of this have to do with Psalm 119? Well, look at the very first verse of Psalm 119. Blessed are the undefiled in the way, who walk in the law of the Lord. We see two things immediately in the very first verse of Psalm 119. Blessed are the undefiled in the way, who walk in the law of the Lord. Number one, parallelism. Look at the two lines correspond to one another, and that the second line elaborates on the first. So we have the type of of, of parallelism in which the second line elaborates on the first line. So we have parallelism there. But also we have a metaphor here. Look at the way in the first line equals what in the second line? The law of the Lord. Exactly. So the way is not a literal way. There aren't people literally undefiled in the way. That's not what the psalmist is saying. The psalmist is not saying, reader, get up and walk on a way and try to remain clean. That's not what the psalmist is doing. What the psalmist is saying is, blessed are those that are undefiled in the way. What is being undefiled? People who walk in the law of the Lord. That is by staying And here's the here's the imagery. Here on the trajectory of the law of the Lord, you remain undefiled, right? You remain pure. You remain clean, or something like that. So immediately, verse one, boom, we have parallelism and we have metaphor. Told you it was going to happen. Oh, and by the way, this is an acrostic. This is Aleph. Ashrei is how this starts off. It starts off with an Aleph. So you have Aleph, Aleph, Aleph for eight lines, and then you have Bet, Bet, Bet for eight, or I'm sorry, eight verses, and and we continue. Now, I just wanted to make sure that we, we defined a couple of things here as we continue. So we see blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. So you think law, law, law. Now, if you were here Sunday, I, I, I preached on the Torah. I preached on two, two books specifically, Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And uh, those, those books are frequently called the law in English or the books of the law of Moses or something like that. In, in, in the book of... Um, Psalms, specifically Psalm chapter 119, we repeatedly see words like law, precept, word, testimony, command, statute, and judgment. We repeatedly see these, and and frequently they're in parallel with one another, used interchangeably. Frequently. They have nuanced meanings. But what's really important to recognize is that the, these words throughout this particular psalm, though, again, they're nuanced in meaning, what they essentially communicate is God's verbal communication to humankind. So when I say verbal, I'm not saying audible like I'm talking now. That's not what I'm talking about. Verbal, I'm using it in the sense that relates to, to words. God's communication through words is frequently referred to by these terms. Law, precept, word, Testimony, command, statute, judgment. Now, this is one of the reasons why we can understand Psalm 119 to a certain extent to apply to the rest of the scriptures. Psalm Psalm 119 was not written before the rest of the scriptures was written, or better stated, Psalm 119 is in the Old Testament, and there's a whole New Testament to be written. But if we understand the psalmist to be speaking about God's verbal communication and honoring and, and, and having, a, having a, a reverence for God's verbal communication, then we, can, uh, then we can apply the psalmist's reverence for God's communication to other utterances that were received by the community of God as the word of God. And we, as we continue, we, we continue to see that other scriptures were received by the community of God as the word of God. And in this sense, this reverence for the word, the, the, the verbal communication, of God that the psalmist has really can be and should be applied to the rest of the scriptures or the rest of God's utterance that we see in the Bible. Let's continue and talk about a couple of other um, verses in which we see parallelism and metaphor pop out, okay? Psalm 119.15, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. So here we see that this Uh, So we we see in the first line, I will meditate on your precepts, very straightforward, literal line, and contemplate on your ways. All right. So is, again, this is intentional. I'm going to intentionally say something ridiculous. Is the psalmist saying that he's going to go out and look at a pathway that he called the pathway of God and stare at it? He's not going to do that because what we see in the second line is is the metaphor, is a metaphor. The way relates here in the second line should be understood as the precepts of God in the first line. And the precepts of God are another way of saying God's verbal communication, God's communication through words. The psalmist says, I revere your communication so much that I am going to contemplate it. I'm going to meditate it. I'm going to to honor it. That's what the psalmist is saying here. We see the opposite of medi- mediating on God's precepts in this verse, in Psalm 119.67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Look at what he's doing here. This is pretty awesome, right? So before I was afflicted, I went astray. So did the psalmist literally sort of lose his way, right? Did he not know where he was going? Did he know? No. What going astray is likened to is not keeping God's word. You see, in the second line of the parallelism, not keeping God's word was why the psalmist went astray. So here we have parallelism and a metaphor. I see people going like this. I see a couple of people that still can't get the heart imagery out of their mind. That's okay. All right. Great peace have those who love your law and nothing causes them to stumble. This is another good one. So frequently in our sort of Christian terminology, we will say things like stumbling block. And we sort of understand intuitively what a stumbling block is. It's something that, you know, causes us to trip up. Oh, that's another metaphor, isn't it? We trip up in the path or whatever. So here we have nothing causes them to stumble in the second line, which is in parallel to the first line, those who love the law walk without any stumbling. So the stumbling, this idea of stumbling is what someone does who doesn't have or doesn't love the law, right? Again, another metaphor. We cannot walk without stumbling unless we love the law. That's the application here. All right. Cha- sort of tr- uh, changing a little bit the metaphor, no, a lot, the metaphor. How about another one that we're all familiar with in Psalm 119? How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Yes, yes, yes. So if you just look at the picture, you get the metaphor, right? Like if there's anyone here that does not want to eat that honey with a biscuit, like we're not normal, right? I mean, th- that, that imagery right there is exactly why the ketogenic diet is not good. <laughs> just, a ke- just a joke. But we look at this and we're like, whoa, God's word is like a sweet food item. And divine communication is like something sweet, right? And most of us really like densely caloric sweet stuff. We like indulgent stuff. Sweet things make us happy. They give us joy. They give us energy. Now, understanding the source domain... We, we, we understand the target domain in light of the source domain. God's word makes us happy. It gives us joy. It gives us energy, right? God's word does these things. So how sweet is your communication to my taste? Oh, God, your word is so good. It's, I want to indulge in it, right? It's even better than honey to my mouth. It makes me happier than honey to my mouth. It, makes me, it gives me more energy than honey to my mouth. Another one that you might even be more familiar with. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So here we go again, right? As if we understand the Bible to be an utterance of God's written word, is there any light coming out of this? There is no light coming out of this. Literally, there is no light coming out of this. Now, that might feel a little uncomfortable because we generally understand the word of God to be a light-bearing object, but literally there's no light coming out of this. That is a metaphor, right? Look at the, oh, there we go. Look at the, the, the parallelism here and the metaphor. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Lamp is in parallel to light. Feet is in parallel to path. You see this? Concise statements juxtaposed next to each other, one next to the other. They're saying very similar things. Here we have parallelism. Now, God's communication, your word, is a, is a lamp. What does a lamp do? Why would we use a lamp? Well, we turn lamps like this one outside of our, our house to, to guide us. Or there are street lamps, right? They, they guide. They also, light also stimulates vision. It makes things visible that wouldn't normally be visible. Now let's understand the target domain and light of the source domain. God's word gives light to guide. Or better stated, It helps us see things that we wouldn't normally see without it, right? God's verbal communication stimulates vision. God's verbal communication with humankind, particularly through the written word, helps us see things that wouldn't normally be visible to us. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. All right. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. God's So we have parallelism here. I rejoice at your word. And then an expansion upon the first line in the second. As one who finds great treasure. So my rejoicing is defined as one who finds great treasure. So God's word here is is the, the metaphor for God's word here is the treasure. God's word is a treasure. So let's talk about a treasure. What's a treasure? Well, a treasure is something that's very valuable, Right? Treasure is something valuable. It's something that's worth a lot. God's communication with humankind, says, says the psalmist, is a very valuable asset. So I rejoice at your word, at your communication. I love your precepts, your law, you know, all of these. I love it. Why? Because it is a, it's like a tremendous, valuable asset, Right? It's not that the psalmist is trying to make it rain with that stack of cash. But, but in reality, it's, it's, de- it's depicted as something that is very valuable, like a, like, a tr- like a treasure. So these are just a couple of examples of the types of metaphors and parallelism that you will encounter as you go through your beautiful 170-something verse acrostic over the next three years. So, and I, I commend you for this. Studying this particular psalm. Into depth, verse by verse, as you continue. Hopefully, these three things that we talked about this evening will be an asset to your study here and will help you become slower readers. Sometimes, in my biblical Hebrew classes, my students will say to me, I'm here to learn Hebrew really, really well. And I'll say, That's awesome. But what you're really actually here to do is to become a better reader. And in studies like this, where we take a long time and slow down and meditate on the text, yes, we want to get through the whole Bible and there's lots of merit in that, but there's also lots of merit in slowing down and becoming a good reader of God's Word, engaging God's Word and recognizing the nuances of meaning that these really awesome writers gave to us by way of employing these aesthetic devices. Psalm 119 repeatedly conveys appreciation, love, and reverence that the psalmist has for God's communication, right? And we'll see this as we continue over the next couple of years. Since the Bible is an utterance from God, God God's communication to humankind, written communication from humankind to humankind, God's very word, we are compelled to respond with the same respect respect. Love and reverence for God's word, as the psalmist uh, indicates throughout the psalm. That is my prayer. My prayer is very simple. Please let me pray it right now. My prayer is this very simple prayer, okay? Lord, my prayer is that you would help us as we continue to study your word, particularly these women, as they go through this psalm over the next couple of years, to respond by loving. By honoring and revering your word, may you enact in change into their lives as a result of their engaging well with your word by the power of your spirit. May they continue to be even greater influences for you and their particular surroundings, whether that be home, work, environment, whatever it might be, Lord, in, as, as a group and as individuals, as a result of the deep study of your awesome word. We pray in your name, Jesus. We know you hear us. Amen. God bless you all.